Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome to this new episode of the FEPS Talks. I'm David Rinaldi, Director of Studies and Policies at FEPS, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. And I'm very glad to host today Jerome Creel, uh, Research Director at uh, Offshé Sciences Po. Uh, Offshé is the Observatoire Français de Conjuncture Économique, one of the leading centers for economic policy and European affairs uh, in France. Jerome, thanks a lot for being here with us today. Thanks, David, for uh, welcoming me. The opportunity came because you have published very recently a nice uh, policy study as part of the recovery watch that FEPS, uh, Institut Emil Werdenwerde and the Friedrich Herbert Stiftung are um, promoting, a nice study on making next generation EU a permanent tool. It has been a, a nice effort together with some of your colleagues because uh, besides yourself, Frédéric Almond, uh, Nicolas Leron, Sandrine Levasseur and Francesco Saraceno have contributed because in this work you go through uh, somehow the democratic angle of EU spending, the legal angle and the economic angle. What would be somehow the rationale, the reason why you think we need a permanent tool? We have seen many discussions uh, in the European circles on whether or not having some European uh, federal policy to some extent, uh, fiscal capacity at the EU level. So discussions have started of the certainly 20 years before we had the euro. It continues. It is Uh, arose as to whether or not we needed to have some European automatic stabilizers. Therefore, we would need a European budget but dedicated exclusively to smoothing the cycle from one country to another. But also, there have been some ideas that uh, all the Europeans we were were maybe sharing common issues. We were looking for common objectives and If we call these issues or objectives European public goods, we have thought, and we were not the first in this respect, to think that uh, uh, European fiscal capacity could be devoted to achieving these European public goods. The question being what we mean, what are European public goods? So the European public goods might be those goods that we produce from one region to another, that may spill over to another region. Spillover might be good, might be bad. If something good happens in Germany, it will be good for France, so maybe France will be liking to discuss about providing these goods with the Germans for the benefits are shared between France and Germany. Or maybe something that is being done in Spain as negative spillovers, like, let's say, pollution to another country like Portugal. So maybe Portuguese would like to discuss with the Spanish about providing the optimal level of these goods. So public goods are related to the environment because of the spillovers. Sometimes we would like to reduce uncertainty as we got threats at our borders. So maybe to reduce these uncertainties, we may be gathering our forces, producing this European public good, call it defense, but we need some funds to do this. And it's certainly better to do this collectively than one country after the other. For we've seen with the Russian invasion of Ukraine that the ammunition of French 
arms, the French army, are not the same as the German ammunition for the German army. So if we send some tanks to Ukraine, it must be related to ammunition of the same country. So maybe we should provide European public goods of this kind. That's the bad thing, defense, unfortunately. And sometimes we need to have some economies of scale so that we provide as many goods as possible to have a benefit to everybody. So that's the reason why we intend to discuss this next generation EU initiative in perennial terms around providing European public goods. But that raises many, many issues. Some are political, some are economic, some are legal, because there's no legal basis for having a long-lasting next generation EU so far. Good. You started exactly from uh, the point that I also like the most in the paper because you have a very thorough categorization of the European public goods in environment, peace and security, infrastructure, health, governance, knowledge, and somehow you assess them according to different criteria on externalities, return to scale and uh, uncertainty. Do you think that this is a good way to somehow achieve some more support for um, a common European fiscal capacity. I think that you know the feeling is that here in Brussels the Commission is speaking more and more about this. There is an increasing relevance of particularly the climate and the security, security angle, knowledge as innovation, infrastructure has rather always been there, but you know, as relevant as before, uh, if not more. But why the other argument that you also provide in the book, that, that of the stabilization, which you also mentioned, is instead not really relevant? Why we don't see the counter-cyclical or the stabilization issues to be that crucial in preventing also future crises? minimizing recession and empowering member states to actually have uh, ability to respond to the economic cycle. We have thought it would be important to focus the study on having a a long-lasting improvement in the European fiscal capacity on structural elements rather than on counter-cyclical policies that are sometimes short-run issues, major ones, but sometimes a short-run issues. We, we took for granted the point that the fiscal rules domestically should be providing sufficient leeway to have these automatic stabilizers play their role so that fiscal policy would remain counter-cyclical. We are not naive in not understanding that so far there has been a decline in the power uh, with which these automatic stabilizers have been playing. Why? Because we've seen the size of governments decline and we know that the higher the size of the government, the more powerful the automatic stabilizers. But with the liberalization we've seen through, at least since the single act and the single market's uh, arrival, of course these things have been decreasing automatic and stabilized are less powerful. We also see that tax systems are less progressive than they were. So we're not naive. Domestically, things have not improved. But to our understanding, to our knowledge, what is a key problem for a country, unless it has a major impact on its partners, should remain in its competence. 
so that automatic stabilizers should be played by the government. So at the very moment we propose that next generation EU, were it permanent, be more dedicated to structural public goods, at the same moment we are also pushing for a reform of the fiscal rules that will go in the direction of having and rendering automatic stabilizers more powerful. We're not naive and we're not going in this direction, unfortunately. The other point is also that if we propose next generation EU as a permanent tool, provided it's possible legally, provided democratically it works, we also wish to, to tell the citizens in Europe, Europe is performing something at the federal level for all of you folks. It's education for all of you folks, it's defense for all of you folks, and it's climate mitigation or climate change for all of you folks. So it's more positive, let's say, than just saying, in case of problem, European countries will help or the EU will help. It's the EU is fostering the change in the societies we're all looking for collectively. Hence the reason why, why we are a family. It's a bit naive, certainly, but uh, this like, is uh, also this, uh, this idea we had in mind. I like the framing about the future and about uh, the Europe providing uh, yeah. opportunities yeah. and uh, solutions and protection. How does the non-paper of uh, the German government coalition linking up to these ambitions of creating a more permanent uh, European tool uh, or continuing the experience of the joint borrowing. You mentioned that we are not going in, in this way. Do you think that that is perhaps a negotiatory position uh, to strike better balance? There are probably room of maneuver. Uh, what, what's the discussion in, uh, in France and what do you think actually we might concretely achieve in this uh, reform and revision of the stability and growth pact? I'd say that um, before the German on paper. I, I don't know if it has been distributed so much, it has been discussed uh, much in the European circles, in large media, uh, Financial Times made a paper on that on the day it was released, but so maybe everybody doesn't know what is inside, but before talking about the non-paper, I'd like to say that the, the proposal by the Commission so far for a reform of the fiscal rules was kind of going in an appropriate direction in order not only to try to calm down the rise in public debts, which is an issue, but meanwhile also giving countries some fiscal room for maneuver to cope with the future challenges I was discussing upon, and also smoothing the cycle. So the Commission was going in the direction in, w in which having some permanent next generation EU dedicated to long-term issues, a large array of them for all the Europeans, plus its proposals would give tax and fiscal leeway to proceed with having debt sustainability in mind, but not only that, as if it was not on the single priority. Okay, it's certainly important to stop the rise in debt to GDP ratio at the level of the government. But with the, the Commission proposals, there was some flexibility proposed to the member states about the, the tools to be used to perform that stabilization, the time length and the duration for stabilizing their debts. So during this process, countries facing difficulties would be able to smooth these difficulties with uh, 
higher spending, lower taxes if required. And meanwhile, they would use a bit of their spending in favor of climate change. But if you head to this, a permanent next generation EU, countries could focus a bit more on smoothing the cycle and also limiting their debt to GDP ratio, while at the overall level, the EU level, we will perform the good investment that we all need. We need, of course, before that to agree on what are the investments we think fit, but there will be leeway for that. So that was going in the direction that I think many economists and experts were considering uh, very reasonable, having learned about the costs of the former episode of fiscal consolidation and austerity. I do not like the, the changes entitled it's consolidation, it's austerity. We cut spending in countries that were looking for this spending to survive. Greece, Portugal, Spain, Italy, including France. That was a disaster. Some said so at the moment it was starting being implemented. Some now say so. Ten years after, they were in charge and they say we made an error. Okay, good. That was a major mistake. We can't do it again. Hence the position of the Commission. They learn from past errors. Then we have the non-paper by the German government that says the priority should be to stabilize their debts first and foremost. And it must be done at a sufficient pace, which was not included in the proposal by the Commission. So it must be one percentage point per year of reduction in the debt-to-GDP ratio. And the non-German paper says it's better than the former rules, because there was a one-twentieth fiscal rule that would disappear, but there would be one percentage point of GDP of decline in debt-to-GDP ratio years after years. So the duration that was flexible in the proposal by the Commission is now very sticky. It's one year. It's very limited. And in the same document, they say that not only it is a priority to reduce debt in member states, but that everything that looks like fiscal discretion should disappear. Meaning what? Meaning that fiscal rooms for maneuver to provide public goods to one's population, improve the social system to the population, improve the education system, the health system, should disappear. It's not on the agenda if you have a debt-to-GDP ratio above 60% of GDP, which is the case for so many member states. So the non-paper by the Germans will make it very complicated to achieve a reform of the European fiscal framework, and it will make a permanent next-generation EU just a dream for people like us here in this room, because the Germans, they seem they don't like it. So is it a negotiation position? Certainly. But it's so tough and it's so far from the initial proposal that personally I can't see how they can reach an agreement. And maybe you saw that uh, Olivier Blanchard and Jérôme Zettelmeyer have just done a paper, I have had not had time to read it, by which they say the discrepancy between both proposals is so wide as that there's a risk that nothing can be achieved. And if I understand well, that would mean that by the end of this year, the former Stability and Growth Pact would have to work again by 1st of January 2024. And austerity, consolidation, whatever the word, would be almost immediate, hence a disaster. I think we have 
many disasters, some today, some looming because the climate change has started but is not over yet, so that we shouldn't have a problem to our problems. But this will be tough negotiation. It's indeed a complex uh, situation and you are very right in this point that appears that the, somehow the German position has already shaped uh, the understanding of the Commission. Uh, Dombrowski already said that probably the Commission will have to move into abandoning the country-specific approach to debt reduction for a one-fits-all target in order to limit the discretion, as you said. But yeah. discretion is also a matter of understanding that we have different situations. And I'm wondering whether this discussion on, for instance, uh, on the debt, how to link it up with other big discussions that we touched and that somehow um, on the table. Because at the same moment we are discussing, uh, okay, let's also be a little bit more tough on debt, but why not advancing on a more common and aggregate fiscal stance, for instance, at the European level, which is not, I would say, debated at the moment, you know, to work on it. Or the other part that has been partly been addressed is state aid, in which even in that, in that direction to finance industrial policy, you don't go first for a European instrument, but you go for more uh, national spending. Also, in this case, creating, I would say, an advantage for those countries that have fiscal space. Why not linking this, okay, more tough on the debt, but national debt, but why not then continuing on relatively good experience of the European joint borrowing? So somehow how we can create a package of things in which maybe we can find a decent balance because the feeling is that if the discussion remain separated in different files, it's highly likely that the German position would be the dominant one in each of them. And perhaps there's a need to look at the economic governance as it is, a, a unique set of rules shaping the future of our union. You, you touch upon the, another complexity. It seems as if we are all working in silos. We, we may be thinking about uh, changing the domestic fiscal rules in that or that direction, more stringent, more flexible. Then we may talk about uh, some European fiscal capacity, some arguing, as we were starting with, with the idea it should be smoothing the cycle with also kind of an aggregate fiscal stance at the euro area level that was part of the agenda until today. It's no, no longer being discussed, although it was part of the job of this, uh, the European Fiscal Board and the Domestic Fiscal Board to gain information on what was the fiscal stance of each member state to see whether the aggregate fiscal stance of the entire euro area was going in the good or the wrong direction. Good directions. It provides growth without generating too much inflation, bad direction, insufficient growth and too much inflation, provided we can show that inflation comes from the fiscal stance. Okay, I do not mean that the inflation episode we have today is related to fiscal policy, not at all. So we are working in, in, in silos, although we need to, and I think this is the commission's competence, to have a broad picture. We've been building very effective, efficient tools during the crisis. The sure mechanism to provide some funds to the member states was country-specific for those in needs of getting the funds for unemployment benefits in their country because of a major crisis that was purely exogenous. COVID was, of 
course, a disaster, a tragedy. But for economists, it was an exogenous uh, shock. Nobody can be blamed in Europe. It's not the Italians, it's not the French, it's not the Germans. We have the shock. During this shock, we created all these tools. Sure has been very efficient. All countries have asked for the money. 100 billion euros has been used by the member states in despair and it certainly has smoothed the difficulties in these countries. We've had the next generation EU because we needed to recover and be resilient. But since the next generation EU, we have had a war at our borders and the problem with climate has not declined, it has intensified. We have defense issues and we may be considering of sharing things together. But this costs money. If we consider that debt at the domestic level might be an issue, now that monetary policy is much less accommodative, we didn't mention monetary policy so far, but it's much less accommodative, it's important that we collectively argue on what we want to do all together. If the only thing we want to do all together is clean our house, although it's burning outside, let's be stringent on the domestic fiscal rules and use the tools that we needed temporarily and stop them at the end of 2026. But if we think we share more than just cleaning the house but also preventing more disasters, we need either to have more domestic fiscal leeway to go in the direction of implementing policies to match these future challenges. So we need flexible domestic rules and maybe no central capacity. Or we adopt a central fiscal capacity funded large amount of money with guarantees from international institutions like the Bank for uh, European Investment, it could be the ECB, there, there are many tricks that we may find to, to get and guarantee this money. And if we have a collective fiscal impulse in the direction of commonly agreed objectives, maybe we can be a more stringent domestically on fiscal rules. But we can't decide on each of these two terms separately. This is what we were writing in the Recovery Watch study we, we've been doing for Fed. It's not unrelated, a permanent next generation EU, to the outcome of the fiscal uh, reform for domestic rules. So we can be tough as the German on domestic fiscal rules, provided we make a kind of a leap into a federal fiscal policy. If we do, want, do not want to make this leap, okay, but we need flexibility, country-specific objectives for, for fiscal policy, something that the Commission has understood. They know it can't be otherwise unless a European fiscal stimulus is made permanent. Allow me to touch on another uh, characteristics of the Next Generation EU and uh, Recovery and Resilience Fund that's included in the Next Gen EU. Because uh, clearly you mentioned that uh, you know we should not go back to the austerity, to the fiscal consolidation, to the European Commission advising member states to cut here and there, but it's also true that we don't want uh, unproductive investment. There's, there's sufficient reason to invest well, sufficient projects actually for transitioning our economy to drive an equality agenda that might require public-led support. But it's also true that the concern of some of the European uh, member states, maybe the, the better of those that have a healthier economic system, is that of having good economic policy in, uh, let's say, peripheral countries. 
and one of the issues with big uh, with public debt uh, you know is also the fact that uh, they have tried to address structural reforms in member states in order to you know to to have them joining a different potential uh, gdp output uh, uh, potential these uh, next generation eu with the system in which money is allocated for specific milestones and once some reforms are attained, can provide somehow a system for a future fiscal capacity that is actually ensuring from a certain point European institutions and let's say the frugals that certain new milestones are you know some some good governance I would say is implemented therefore we can can use the PM common budget as a guarantee. In yeah. this sense, for me, it's also important to stress that there's no money from German people or, or Dutch people. <laughs> we are using the, the European budget as a guarantee to actually take funds from, uh, from, from the markets. There's not exactly somebody paying at the moment, correct? In the end, everything should be funded by new uh, resources, new European resources that remain to be built and created but I think this is also there are different issues. I remember uh, 20 years ago when some were arguing that uh, Europe should adopt a kind of a golden rule of public finance according to which uh, fiscal rules would only apply on uh, operational expenditures excluding uh, investment, whereby investment, public investment, could be fully funded by debt. That some were saying nonsense because there will be unproductive investment, and all countries will say, "Okay, my expenditure now I label it an investment." So everything would become public investment. What, what is a public investment? So far, it has been a rise in equipment, a rise in infrastructures, and expenditures in research and development. So that conceptually, it's very limited. But that doesn't mean that all research is always productive. Many research projects are not productive, and it's, it's the game. But some infrastructures are not productive either. I'm always telling my students that it shouldn't be a good idea to have Louvre Pyramide at every corner of Paris. This would be starting with being a public investment, but it would not give more attractiveness to Paris. It's scarce. One uh, Louvre pyramid, it's sufficient. So it's an issue. So when I was discussing about this golden rule of public finance 20 years ago, and I was told, nonsense, they will be unproductive, I was always saying, okay, you need a group of people, experts in their field, you don't let them leave the room before they have been able to tell us what level of these, 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 these expenditures might prove productive. Maybe we can understand that only 60% of public investment is really productive. Okay, so the rule might be up to 60% of investment. You can be using debt issuances to fund it. But maybe 45% of uh, expenditures, wages in the education system are proven productive because what the knowledge diffusion, blah, blah, blah. So you do this, you will not achieve a numerology a classification that everybody agrees upon, but you say, okay, this is the consensus today. Now we have rooms for maneuver to go in the direction of discussing about what's productive, what's non-productive. What is non-productive? 
levy taxes if you want to fund this uh, unproductive investment expenditures why not and what is productive be it wages in the education system you can raise them so that means that those that argue that we need funds for some investments they do think that it will provide two possible two positive effects the first one will be a demand positive effect like for any other spending okay but this demand effect will be short-lived and there should be the so-called supply effect you improve the productivity of the country productivity also has to be labeled because it may be related to the well-being of the people the quality at work which will improve the attractiveness of going to the office we've been facing covid with many people working on a remote basis although covid has to some extent stopped people work on a remote basis those that can but they continue they don't want to go to the office this kind of attractiveness in jobs that has to some extent declined so maybe we could increase the quality of jobs the quality of the working place this will prove productive so there are many things to be done publicly to boost that can be done by the regions by the government it can be done at the eu level so there's scope for improvement but there might be a positive impact in this uh, on the supply side in the longer run but that's more than a than a guess in the short run so we must try but if we don't we can look in retrospect to what what we have been doing to our public policies for 40 years the situation has not improved and this is not politics to say so we look at the data we see the european union continent drifting away we're losing power vis-a-vis -vis the us and china and we are in the middle and they discuss about many things they have the inflation reduction act in the us which is to some extent a reaction to our next generation eu but we may retaliate and say we we make a step further they say billions of uh, of dollars attracting our companies let's do the same they will stop very fast if they see that we do the same as them because it's it's uh, not a win-win situation this IRA if they win we lose so we must make them lose if we win we must retaliate we don't do that because we are liberal uh, we are uh, still having this idea of the single market we should not change the single market we should not change the state aid rules except under exceptional circumstances but the circumstances they are exceptional we're losing weight in uh, international negotiations you have mentioned uh, as well the inflation reduction act in the us which uh, brings actually a lot of finance to climate uh, it prompted also some discussion in Europe on, you know, uh, give a new birth uh, to the European in the, in the industrial industrial policy, which should certainly be linked to uh, probably um, the issue of uh, European public goods, as you mentioned, and the issue of, you know, in this case, probably retaliation. It would just be um, somehow taking care of our uh, own development and sustainable development needs without harming the collaboration with the U.S. I think that the, that's the first response that they that they've given to the European Union. Uh, when we have uh, first complained about some of the prescriptions on the electric vehicle, they said, why don't you 
do the same. That's the very first thing that, they, that they've done. If we are going in, in this uh, direction of transforming, if you want, European industrial policy, which the next generation you have started to do on train transition, you mentioned state aid. I'm wondering, and that's the big question, can we do all this with the current uh, treaties or we have to come up with a new package? You have uh, in, in the policy study on the next generation you somehow um, also an assessment of these specific uh, to the next gen, but if I broaden it a little bit uh, farther, because you mentioned Shure, for instance, another uh, temporary measure, uh, you know, good and, uh, you know, the, one of the real uh, counter-cyclical tools that the economic governance of the union had, but it's already finished. Somehow we are not ready for the next uh, exogenous shock. But I would also go farther and saying that ESM uh, is still not part of the of the community law. So it's, you know, it's a patch that was uh, was created uh, you know, 10 years ago, more, more or less, and it's still not included thoroughly into the economic governance. There's no accountability, for instance. But even the European Green Deal, you know, now it exists and it's shaping European policies, but it's not part of the economic governance yet. Up to which extent can Europe continue to add patches, even good patches, without changing the framework. What it takes, if not a big pandemic and a climate emergency, to understand that we have to go to a new model of sustainable development. I've been reminded yesterday, as I was already in Brussels, by someone talking during a, a meeting uh, coming, and this person was from the Commission. But the, the Commission, uh, Mrs. Ursula von der Leyen, was almost speaking about a treaty change in the latest report on the state of the EU. So uh, this might be a major change and this would make things clearer. David, I'm uh, fully agreeing with you, since the world has changed uh, since uh, 1957, the Treaty of Rome, and even uh, since uh, 2009, uh, the Treaty of Lisbon. And uh, the Treaty of Lisbon is, uh, is young, of course, he is, a, he is a teenager, but the world has changed so much. The ideas we've had on the uh, incidence of the public sector in the economy has changed entirely, because without the public sector, who knows where we would be standing in the world after COVID-19, because we've seen an increase in public spending overall in all countries. It's the states that have made it happen, that managed this crisis. So our ideas on public policies, public sectors have changed. The difficulties we face uh, are so numerous. So they, the best idea should be to change the treaty, but it requires unanimity and you open the Pandora's box. Who knows what will happen? And some countries are very uh, afraid, it seems, of opening this Pandora box. Hence the necessity to include new options surrounding the treaties to cope di with the difficulties, with, with always a limitation, which is that these new options are related to exceptional and temporary situations. That has been the case for next generation EU. The reasons why we argue in, in the policy study for FEPS that it was uh, built on being only temporary. 
So the first caveat of having it permanent is to provide the legal basis for it. This is why we have proposed to include a new option surrounding the treaties, which would be to build a European Public Investment Agency that would be given more designing power than the Commission can have on building the public investment that is collectively required at the EU level before allocating this public investment to the different member states and also having sufficient control on how the funds are, are being used. This relates to your former question. Because, of course, uh, the idea that many experts have, and we do have in this paper, is not spending, spending, spending. It's spending well. And in order to make sure it has been spent well, it requires some controls. So it requires some confidence beforehand that we have been able to, to see the good projects to be funded, but it also requires that at the end of the day, we know that the funds have gone to the project, that they've been well used, and that it has been productive. And if it has not been, but has been well used, this was not a good investment. We shouldn't be doing it again. I think actually uh, that it's very nice closing uh, to um, have mentioned the European Public Investment Agency as uh, one of the uh, proposals that, uh, that you leave for discussion in these policy studies, uh, making Next Generation EU a permanent uh, tool. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Jerome Creel. I invite all the um, listeners to check uh, FEP's website uh, slash recoverywatch to check this publication as well as uh, several others that have, that have already been uh, um, published, for instance, on how the national uh, recovery and resilience plans uh, have been able to um, redesign child policy and care in, uh, in member states, how they have uh, uh, been able to place, uh, place sensitivity at the core of the new um, economic development. Uh, and in the future we will also be assessing uh, um, the um, RRF monitoring system. We will assess uh, how the next generation EU has been able to um, drive the gender uh, agenda and mainstreaming. Uh, and uh, we will look at uh, the active labor market policies in the RRPs and many other issues. So let's stay connected. Uh, and uh, let's keep on pushing for a broad reform of European economic governance. Thanks, Jerome. Thanks, David. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.